I'm supposed to try to preach after that. I've got, I've got a Bible and a... There it is. Very good. Well, now, now I can just pre- preach. I, I was petrified about that, but now, now, now we can get it. Aren't they great? Isn't that fun? Uh, this morning, uh, I'm remembering a, a story, really. It's a true story um, about Fran Tarkington. Do y'all remember Fran? Yeah. Played for the um, Minnesota Vikings before that for the Georgia Bulldogs. Three-time Super Bowl quarterback, 18 years, uh, one of the league's first uh, scrambling quarterbacks, I guess you would say. College All-American. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. His sophomore year, he was a third-string quarterback on the sidelines at the University of Georgia. And his coach had just told him, since you're third string, you're not going to get any playing time this year. We might as well redshirt you and not lose the year in eligibility. And then, as Fran Tarkington will tell the story, something happened. Check this out. Hi, I'm Fran Tarkington. My moment was, well, there could have been many, but my most important moment, I was a sophomore at the University of Georgia. They were going to redshirt me. We're playing in Austin, Texas. We get into the fourth quarter. I haven't played at all. Uh, they put into our team on the five-yard line. I put myself in. I ran onto, I ran onto the field. They were going to redshirt me and, and, and give me four more years of eligibility. And, and I said I didn't want to be redshirted. I could play. I could help our team right then. But uh, Wally Butts, the coach, said, nah, that's a right attitude, but we're still going to redshirt you. But I was determined not to be redshirted. I was a third-string quarterback. If I don't make that move at that time, I might never have played college football because the two guys ahead of me were really good players. And by taking, I created a sense of desperation. I just felt I had to play. I had to get in, and, and I, I felt I could play. We were behind 7 to nothing. They punted to, uh, to us. We, ca- we caught it on the, on the five-yard line. The quarterback who was in the game, Charlie Britt, made the, a, a cardinal mistake. He was sitting on the side at the bench still. I saw him sitting on the bench, and I ran onto the field. My teammates said, what are you doing in here? I said, do I come to win this game? We marched 95 yards. We score 7-6, first year of the two-point conversion. That moment was so important because uh, uh, I created a sense of desperation that I had to I had to play because I thought I could be play better than the rest of the people and I could I could lead this team to victory. A year later, we, I led them to the SEC championship, made all SEC, All-American, drafted by the Vikings, and there, there we are. I believe in myself that I, w- I was going to find ways to make myself work because successful people do that. But I do look back on that pivotal time when I, as an 18-year-old sophomore at the University of Georgia, just went onto the field. Our team seven nothing behind. That moment was a transformational moment for my life. It was a transformational moment for Fran, that moment that he put himself in the game. Did y'all catch that? Could you hear it? Do you understand the story? Seven to zero, fourth quarter, playing in Austin. The Longhorns have them down. The, the, the Longhorns are ranked 11th in the nation that year. Georgia's not even ranked. They seem to have the game completely in control, and something's got to change. Something's got to happen. 
and uh, Charlie Britt sitting on the on the sidelines and uh, apparently talking to a coach and not realizing it's time to go in and Fran saw his opportunity out onto the field he scampered wasn't put in the game just put himself in the game the other players knew that he was the third screen third string quarterback what are you doing out here and he says I'm here to win this game and by gosh he convinced him 95 yards, they went down and scored. Now, you, you might think that uh, a two-point conversion, he, he didn't go for, he didn't let, the, the kicker started out on the field, actually, and he told, the, he waved the kicker off. And, and people didn't understand what he was doing because it was a brand new rule that year, and this was the first game of the year. He, he was focused enough and conscious enough to realize that they had just put in a two-point conversion opportunity if you took it across the line rather than kicking it through the uprights. And he was one of the first ones ever to wave a, a kicker back off. He took the, the, the ball, hiked the ball to it, and he threw it into the end zone, and they went up. They didn't just tie, they went ahead 8-7. to seven. Now the end of the story is not very good. The Texas Longhorns came back and actually scored another six points and beat them. I wish that hadn't happened. It really messes up my story. But, 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 but the point is that Fran Tarkington and so many other destinies were reshaped that day because Fran listened to this compelling inner voice calling him to get in the game. He didn't wait for the perfect circumstances. He didn't wait for anybody else's permission. He took that, that voice on the inside as his, 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 his calling. And out onto the field he went. What would happen if we got into the game? Years ago, the big animals and the little animals were playing a football game. And the big animals were just trouncing them. You know, they'd give the ball to the rhino and he'd run right over the centipede. Just no problems at all. They'd just been playing all afternoon. It didn't look good. And, uh, um, you know, it went on like this. And then finally they gave the ball in the fourth quarter to the rhino. And the rhino went to the line of scrimmage and just got trounced. You know, just down in the dirt, comes up, picking the mud off of his horn. And, man, who was that? Where did he come from? We don't know. We don't know. Let's run another play. Same thing happens on the next play. Gets to the line of scrimmage and just taken out. And uh, all the big animals get back in the huddle and they say, who was that? And, and they said, well, we think it's the millipede. The millipede? Yeah, where was he the first half? Well, he was putting on his shoes. <laughs> what, what, what would happen... If all of us with that, with that sense of calling in our hearts actually got in the game, odds could be turned. I, I, I think we've got some Fran Tarkingtons here this morning. In fact, I know that as we started to uh, just try to identify, and, and we don't have any fancy way of doing this, of identifying who in our church is serving uh, our staff started going through the list of all the names of the people in our church and all the visitors to our church, and we were up to over 150 people that we could identify several ways that you already are serving within the church. The millipede has put its shoes on in this place. And on November 15th, we, we just want to have a, a, a little time of celebration uh, that many of us are, are hearing that, that call to, to get in the game. 
And, and this year, as we talk about our discipleship and getting into serving again, I, I, I want us to think about it not just in terms of serving the institution of the church, but serving God's agenda wherever we are in the world. I'm so pleased that in the last several years, our, our church has started really intentionally to turn itself outward. The Aspen Creek ministry just across the street where we go to tutor kids and support teachers and the many ways that Wayne Tate leaves that, leads that uh, ministry to do that is a way for us to make a difference, not just in, listen, it's one thing to become a good and healthy church, but that's not the end game. That doesn't put the ball in the end zone. The point is not for us to just be a healthy church. The point is for us to make the world healthier around us. It's to have an impact. Kingdom come, thy will be done. Not in church as it is in heaven. But on this earth as it is in heaven. God doesn't have us here just to have a good time with one another. Though that's part of it. Enjoy the Ponderosa. You're welcome. Right? But God calls us into service because he wants us as a body of servants, an army of servants committed to him to make a difference in our world. To empower you wherever you go when you're scattered during the week. In those places also there to be an an agent for God's kingdom wherever you are. When you go back to school, when you go back to work, wherever you are, he calls us to, to get in the game. And our scripture this morning is in 1 Peter, if you want to turn there with me, 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, um, beginning with the seventh verse. And uh, it starts with that same sense of urgency. We've shared in, in previous Sundays, maybe you remember a while back, where I asked you, what time do you think it is? What time do you think it is in this world? Do you, th- do you think the game clock on the world still has a lot of time on it? As, as far as the prophetic clock and it's t- ticking, do you, do, you, do you see us, I don't know, fourth quarter maybe? Seven points down? Something's got to happen. Uh, God, I think, wants to use his people in a victorious kind of march and way in, in this world, right? Uh, what time is it? And... and 1 Peter uh, senses that same kind of urgency back in his day. Something's got to give. And he actually says in verse 7 of chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. (laughs) The, 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 The time is running out. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be alert. Be discerning. Because we need to be living our lives on, on, on purpose, especially now. But it's interesting to me, when, when, the, when the times to, to Peter seem so critical, what he suggests we do is basic discipleship. Do the things that we know to do, but do them with greater fervor, greater effectiveness. Uh, prayers, that's where he starts. We've talked about that. We don't have to talk about it this morning. Uh, be of sound judgment and, and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. It all starts with God. If our inner life isn't stoked on the fires of the heart of our God, then when we go into this world, we're just another cold ember trying to warm somebody else up. We're a sponge 
with only sponginess rather than what we've soaked in God to give away to the world. So it all starts with prayer. We've talked about that. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We, we went from prayers to presence. Uh, and because we've pledged ourselves as disciples in this place, when we join the church, we said, I will support the church and the mission of God with my prayers, my presence, my gifts, my service, and my witness. Those are the things on the left. And so because we've pledged ourselves to prayer, we worship regularly. Because we've pledged ourselves to presence, if we'll advance to the next slide. Because we've adva- pledged ourselves to presence, so... so we fellowship faithfully. And then in this particular passage, he skips right over giving and goes straight to service. So that's what I'm going to do too. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to it though. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sober judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Folks, when that grows cold, we're all in trouble. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And then he turns to service, verses 10 and 11. And each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as God's, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I want to point out something. When the Bible talks about service, it rarely uses the term volunteer. what's What's the term that's used in that passage? Servant? Good steward? But very rarely does the biblical understanding of service align very well with volunteerism. And I'll tell you why. Usually volunteerism starts with me. It's what I want to do. It's what I feel like doing. It's what I'm interested in doing. It usually ends with me too. As soon as whatever I'm doing is not something I like, I quit. That's where the volunteerism can stop, right? It, it, it has a way, if it's not reciprocated, if it's not recognized, if it's not appreciated, if it's not making a noticeable difference now to make it worth it to me now, volunteerism has a, it starts and ends with me. Biblical service never starts and ends with me. It always starts with God and ends with God. It starts with what he's done for me so that my life of service is not doing just what I'm inclined to do. My life of service is responding to what he's done for me. Does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a response to what he's already done in an overwhelming way. He has carried my cross so I can find my place in his purpose too. If I'm loved like that, I want to get in on that. I want to get in in that game. If, if, if that's what God's about, then I want to be about what God's about. Not because I'm trying to earn my place with God. And I, I really hope Christians understand this because I think most people looking at the church from the outside completely misunderstand this. But what scares me to death is I think about 60% of the church doesn't get this. I think 
oftentimes the reasons we serve is because of fog. Fear, obligation, and guilt. Fear. If I don't serve, God's not going to like me. If I don't serve, God's going to be upset with me. If I don't serve, I'm not pulling my weight. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm not serving, I'm expendable. We, 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 we serve, we can serve because of fear. And even though sometimes we know that we are the children of God and we have this well of gratitude to, to draw on in order to pay it forward, right? Even though we always, always know that, we can be reminded of that, sometimes our motives in the moment of serving, forget that. And we think that our service is our way of appeasing a God that's got his hands folded in heaven saying, well, what are you going to do for me today? And nothing could be farther from the picture of what it means to serve as a Christian. Nothing could be farther. We serve out of gratitude for what he's already done. And we don't only just serve for the gratitude for what he's done. We serve out of the joy of being with him in what he's doing right now. Amen. It's Ponderosa stuff. This, this, this grand mission wasn't something that we came up with. It's something God's been doing for thousands of years. We, we get in on, on that. That's our heritage. But that's also, folks, our legacy. So while it's our watch, let's not let the Ponderosa go to, go to waste. You understand? There's a joy in being in on God's love in this world and being a part of that mission. It's not just, it's gratitude, yes. But it's not just gratitude. It's also the joy of being in the game with God. That's where he is. Jesus said, listen to this. Jesus said in John chapter 12, Jesus said, where I am, there my servant will also be. Where is Jesus? Where is the Spirit working? Well, that's where you ought to find folks like me and you. Whatever God's doing in the world, whatever God's doing in the church, let me in on that. Let me in on that. I, I, I want to be with him and what he's doing. Do you remember, uh, I watch a lot of movies. It's really obvious when I preach. Uh, do y'all remember the movie? We saw it this summer. It was one of the ones we showed. The Count of Monte Cristo. Do you remember that? He had been in the Chateau d'If for years and, and then extricates himself uh, for, from that inescapable prison, shows up on, on a shore, and then runs into a bunch of pirates. Do you remember that on the, on the shore? And, and, and the pirates uh, uh, have a little game they want to play with him. Uh, uh, and, and he goes he goes to battle with this this uh, knife thug knifing thug named Jacobo, right? And uh, uh, Jacobo's done something that the captain of the ship needs to discipline him for, and the other guys want to see a little sport. So uh, the only way that the captain can be merciful to Jacobo and not lose control of his whole crew is to set now uh, you know Jim Caviezel. I don't even remember the guy's name, but the guy that would become the Count of Monte Cristo set him up in a knife fight with, with Jacobo. That way, Jacobo wins, and the guys have seen their sport, and Jacobo has risked his life, so, so he's paid for his infractions, and, and they can go on about their business, and, and the Count of Monte Cristo is a bloody mess on the shore, never to be remembered again. 
But they didn't know that he had discovered all these fighting ways in, in prison. And Jacobo comes at him with a knife. And in a few quick moves, he's got him pinned on the beach with a knife at his throat. And then he looks up at the captain and he says, uh, uh, let me make you an offer right now. I can kill him. Or uh, I can spare him. The men have seen their sport. Jacobo gets to live. And you've got not one, but two crew members to return to your ship. And the captain takes him up on it. And uh, all that's fascinating. But what, what I want to point out is that, that next moment, when, when Jim starts to, he gets up, that being accepted, that offer being accepted, and starts towards the ship. And as he gets up, Jacobo, whose life has just been spared, reaches up and grabs him around the throat and pulls him close and looks into his eyes. And he says, I swear, I am your man forever. <laughs> you remember that? Why do we serve? Because someone has spared us. He more than spared us. He died in our place. And, and, and when we're loved like that, there, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a response of the heart, not a supposed to, a want to, a right to, a compelled to. I am your man forever. Right? That's the heart of a servant. It's, it's, not some, it's not some bland functionality. It, it's, it's not, it's not uh, uh, solving problems. It's not just meeting needs. It's not just all the practical benefits of, of being a servant in the world. It's not even making necessarily an impact on the world. It's the response of a heart whom Christ has made an impact on. You follow me? And when we serve from that motivation, we, we can leave fear, obligation, and guilt in the dust behind. Because he already loves us. See? That, that, that's the point. Have you ever noticed that when, when Jesus was about to launch into three years of life-giving service, pouring himself out in the world, God was not waiting at the end of that journey to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, alone. Before he did anything. He did anything. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That could be the starting point of your service too. He already loves you. He's already proud of you. He's already got a plan for you. He's already committed to walk through every step of it with you. You don't serve to get something from God. You serve because He's already given you so much. It's your joy to give back all you got. Because He gave all for you and no matter how much you give or how much it costs you <laughs> my friend it's a bargain it's a bargain we, we, we can serve because of fear obligation and guilt we can serve as hirelings and, and so often if, if it doesn't start with God and it starts with us volunteers not servants I'm not, I don't mean to put down volunteer. I'm just defining it very, very narrowly for the purpose of understanding this, right? That, that, that if it doesn't start with God and, and, and we're left to our own motivations for, for why, we, why we serve, often what we become is hirelings. That, that, for what reason do you serve? Well, I serve because it's fun. That's great. 
What are you going to do when it ain't fun no more? I serve because it, it, it makes me feel significant. Well, that, that's great. It is significant. You ought to feel good about it. But what are you going to do when nobody notices? What are you going to do when there's no recognition? There, there's, there's, uh, if, if we're not understanding why we serve, our service uh, can be undermined so quickly. And even when we do understand why we serve, if we get into some stinking thinking, if we forget then the attitude of our heart and our actions can reveal us to be functioning as a hireling, even though we're neither a slave, functioning out of fear. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but he, he has adopted you. Wherefore, uh, Romans 8, you're quoting it to me right now. Romans 8, uh, help me. You got that? You memorized? 2 Timothy 1.10, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. That's, that's another one. There you go. There you go. God, God, is, God is not wanting to motivate us by fear. He, he, he does not want us to serve because we feel threatened by God. He wants us to serve because that's our way of responding in gratitude to what he's already done and also our way of being with him in what he's doing in the world. It's a, it's a way of hanging out with the one that we love and the one that loves us more than we could ever love him. That's a pretty good deal. Not for the returns, but for loves. Not slaves, not hirelings, but sons. It's Ponderosa stuff. Well, what else? It's, it's for greatness sake. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many. He, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And if Jesus then is who we're becoming like, Jesus redefines greatness for us. Uh, he says, the, the, the Romans and others lord their authority over you, but I've come to be, to be a servant. And the greatest among you, see how he flips it up, so, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. The disciples, it's a surprising thing. The disciples are walking into the upper room that night and there's a basin and a towel and the, the servant, a common uh, expression of hospitality in the culture of the day was to wash the feet of those who had been wearing their sandals all day in the dust of hot Palestine and, and their shins were probably sweaty and, and even though they had taken a bath that morning and for the most part were clean because they had walked those dusty streets uh, without shoes and without a pair of slacks on, you know, uh, their, their, their shins were, were sometimes almost muddy from, you know. And so when you'd come in for dinner and people didn't sit with their feet under a table, they sat around a table with their feet hanging out, it was only, it was only nice for the, the host to offer to wash the feet. It was the role of the lowliest person in the house to wash the feet. But if you know why you're serving, you can't be a doormat to anybody when you're the servant of the king. And Jesus, listen to how he models this for us. Jesus, knowing from where he had come and to where he was going, took about himself a towel and a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. 
John 13. Knowing where he'd come from. You see the bookends of father love in this? Knowing where he'd come from and where he was going. Knowing whose he was. He didn't have to get his significance from those other disciples. He, didn't, he wasn't risking becoming less than he was by bending down low and becoming the lowliest person in the room. See, he, he, he didn't need any of that, right? He, he was freed up to serve and to serve powerfully because he knew whose he was. Do you know whose you are when you serve? Do, do you remember that? Did you understand who's watching with delight? Do you understand who's with you in all that you do? Do you understand who's organizing those circumstances where you have an opportunity to serve and be God's love with skin on in this particular circumstance? Uh, Why we serve. It's so important. Next. Who we serve. Well, first of all, we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord. And, and, and that's made really clear. In Colossians it says, uh, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord and not as unto men. That doesn't mean that we serve the Lord and we don't serve that men. That means when we serve men, we always do it according to the agenda of the Lord. Other, otherwise, if you... Uh, here, this, this gets a little tricky. Well, what, what, what did servants look like in those days? There, there was a master. And whatever you did as a servant, it wasn't like you, you, you had a job description like we have today. And you go and you did your good job description and that was done. Servants were attentive to the master. They waited for his commands. They waited on him hand and foot. He, he, he was, and, and so servants of that day were always focused on their master, Right? To see what he wanted. To see what his pleasure was. My, my, your wish is my command kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, that's, how, that's how servants work. And uh, so even when we're serving others, we never serve others manipulated or forced to their terms of receiving that service. That's... That's really quite important. That's the key to not become codependent in serving others. To give them the agenda of how you do that and what that means. That doesn't mean you're insensitive to people. You pay very close attention to people. But there's sometimes you don't serve people well by just doing what they want. See? And, 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 and people, I hate to say this, but if, if we're motivated by fog... We motivate others by fog. We push others around. We obligate them. We guilt them. Right? We don't want to do that. We serve the Lord. And we serve one another. And then one more step. And we serve anyone that's in need. In fact, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, there's this wonderful little passage about the body of Christ. Uh, and, and, and Paul says there that uh, he who is less seemingly uh, gets more abundant honor in the body of Christ. And so that he who lacks in the body of Christ is the one that, the one that receives the attention. The one that's the focal point. It's not, it's not the servant. It's the one that's in need. That, 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 that's where we focus. And, and someone asked a mother. 
which one of your children do you love most? And she said, whichever one's in need at the moment. And it works the same way in God's family. It says there in 1 Corinthians 12, so that we might have the same care for each member. See, we recognize when someone is stressed or in trouble, and that's where our attention goes. Now, that's not how it works in most circles. In most circles, the person who gets the most attention is the one who's doing the best. They're the star. But not in the body of Christ. Right? It's a, it's a different kind of mentality. It's an upside down kind of world. And, and unless we let God... Uh, I'm going to have to wrap up here. And, unless, and I'm one-fifth of the way through the sermon. Uh, unless, unless we let God master our service. See? Uh, we, we miss those opportunities and, and, and we miss the needy one among us. And the truth of the matter is we miss the opportunity both to be in service for God and to be really empowered to serve even when it's difficult. I'm going to close with this. You've heard me say, tell this story a thousand times. It's still the best one I know so I'm going to serve it up to you again today. Is that Okay. You, 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 know, you know the story of the medical student who wanted to work on his bedside manner. Decided he'd go to Calcutta and walk around with Mother Teresa. He had heard she was fantastic, you know, people. He wasn't a people person, he was a scientist. And his professor had told him that he needed to go and go somewhere and learn bedside manner from somebody. So he, he went and volunteered in Calcutta with Mother Teresa and he was walking around with her one day and she was loving on the kids and just pouring herself out, walking through the long lines that had lined up outside for the medical clinic. And she came to a small child, and the, the child ha- was just afflicted with, with oozing sores that were uh, cracked and, and oozing all over the child's face. It was, it, it was just gross. And uh, he, he was repulsed by it as he saw this child's face, you know, just ugh, and uh, caked on and Un, unclean and, and, and gross. And he had pity on the child, but he was repulsed by the child, and he was absolutely shocked with what Mother Teresa did. She bent down and picked up the child, stroked its back, and the child looked at her, and she kissed that cruddy face. She didn't offer any medical attention. She didn't heal anything, but she healed everything at that moment. That child that had been held at arm's distance and been rejected was valued and connected and loved again in that moment. But all this medical student could see was the crud, you know. And it just, it, it came out of his mouth before he realized he was saying it. Did that ever happen to you before? All of a sudden he just found himself saying, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And Mother Teresa said, neither would I. Neither would I. But there was a reason she would do it. And it, it made her service something 
powerful. It made her service a joy. It made her service something that stopped the world in its tracks because it was giving glory to God. There's two ways to give glory to God with your service. One's by being so connected to him that the things that you do in service can only be explained by the fact that he's with you. Right? And the other way to give glory to God is to always let God, even though sometimes our service is unfruitful, even though sometimes our service doesn't seem to be effective, even though our service sometimes isn't inhabited with a wonderful attitude, sometimes when we get in a a place where our service is frustrated, we can always remember this, that even though the effects of what happens in other people's lives as we plant the seeds of service is beyond our control, we are always in control of letting God shape us. And so service isn't always meant to be easy. God didn't design it that way. If you get to functioning apart from God, just doing what you're doing because you're trying to build up yourself, make yourself look good or feel good or something like that, you're going to hit a wall eventually. And that wall is designed to say, where did I miss Jesus? Where did I leave him behind? Are you with me? There'll be times when your service stretches you beyond what your heart is capable of wanting to do. And in those moments, God will whisper to you, I'm here. Look at me. Follow me. We'll do this together. Kiss the cheek. Right? At the end of this passage, we we, we serve, but with the strength that God supplies. We speak, but though it's we that speak, we speak as it were the utterances of God. It always starts with him. He's both the beginning and he gets the bouquet at the end. Right? He gets the glory. And that's not just a matter of, of, of giving him credit for the things that we do. It's more than that. It's letting him work in us in such a way that whether or not that service and that grace has an effect in the world, the world can reject it. We can always let it work in us. Right? We can always be changed by our service. And any time in your service, your heart starts feeling stretched. Any time you, you get a bad case of the chuckets. Oh, I'm the only one. God may be inviting you back to the well. To renew yourself in him. Put on that yellow mask before you go helping other people in the cabin. That's where it starts. Christian servanthood always starts in the embrace of the Father. And it always ends in the embrace of the Father. Welcome to the Ponderosa. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we we pray this morning that our hearts would be renewed to make an impact in this world because you've made an impact in us. And Father, we thank you that that's not just something that we pay forward from the 
past, but it's something that we can enjoy moment by moment as our joy and your joy intermingle in our service of others around us. As we love those whom you love far more than we do, Father, help us to sense your delight. And all the ways that the people of this church love and serve and pour themselves out, Father, I pray that in those moments they would sense your fellowship renewing them that they would be reminded of their embrace behind them and the embrace before them and your presence with them in that very moment. Make of us those kinds of servants. As we celebrate servanthood in this place in about two weeks, Father, we pray that those who are walking in this life would, would be renewed in it. That they would be recognized and appreciated, but that wouldn't be the source of their joy. That would be just the icing on the cake. That would be just us honoring one another as you call us to as Christian family. But more than with all that, God, I I, I just ask that if we feel like we're on the sidelines and on the bench, as important as serving you in this world is at this time, as our culture is at war, as the next generation awaits a baton pass of faithfulness. God, make of us your servants. We ask it in the name of your Son, who served us, serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.